0: Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing today, sir?
1: Yeah, well, I'm uh I've got a lot on my mind. Things are for me, I guess things are going okay. Um mm-hmm. how are you doing?
0: I'm exhausted, man, uh, to be frank. I, I don't I don't have a whole lot of words to Describe what I'm feeling, you know it's the same feelings I've had in the past Any anytime a situation like what we're experiencing right now has been happening, there's frustration, there's anger, there's sadness, and there's a lot of exhaustion. There are a couple of new things I'm experiencing, new emotions, but uh, those are fairly common and yeah man that is that is how I'm feeling, yeah,
1: yeah, I mean all that is real, so.
0: But yeah, I am just grateful to be here, to be re- to be directing my energy to something positive. One thing I really appreciate about this show is the opportunity I get to have both of my identities, the identities most important to me, my blackness and my and my uh dis- and my Christian discipleship reflected in this particular medium. So, this is a very healthy thing for me to do. And um, so long as I'm here, man, this is a positive use of my time and I can have some measure of peace knowing that this is being put out there, this reflection of my identity and my soul, and that it is doing some good for somebody out there. It makes it makes being here worthwhile, man.
1: Right, well, I'm so glad we're doing this together and I'm sure we have a lot of listeners who are very thankful for, for everything.
0: Yeah, man, yeah. So uh, with that, let's go ahead and uh, talk a little bit about what's been happening this week or what's going on. We are now in the month of June, so that means pride. Derek, do you have yeah. anything you want to say about that? Pride Month.
1: Well, the first thing I want to uplift is the historical piece, Stonewall, 1969. Everyone should know this, and if you don't, you should research it. Mm-hmm. And this is actually relevant because Stonewall was an uprising itself. It was pushing back against police brutality, police overreach, and right. uh, an absolute injustice. Right. And all of these, um, you know, privileged corporate gays who are l- now having rainbows everywhere should never forget that this is where, this is this is who we are. This is, wouldn't have happened. All of the things that they take for granted wouldn't be here had it not been for Stonewall.
0: Right, right.
1: And obviously, um, Stonewall itself was started by queer people of color we should never yeah. erase that that from our history mm-hmm. that's pretty much all I wanted to say about pride with with one more detail and that has to do with coronavirus Okay, a lot of people a lot of conservatives really made fun of the liberals and said well wait till the tables are turned and then all your pride stuff is cancelled you better not complain and I'm like of course we're not going to complain because we, my people, know what it's like for the government to not care when there's an epidemic. I'm talking about AIDS right now. Uh-huh. We know what it's like to, to live through that and have the government do nothing for years. And we're grateful that that there's been some intervention and been a, relatively um, compared to what happened with AIDS. We've got some good minds thinking about this and doing things. And so, of course, you know, and Pride has been canceled since April. Like, we're, mm-hmm. we're not complaining. So that's all I wanted to say about that. And hopefully we will take this opportunity to dig deep into the roots of Pride mm-hmm. and realize we've got resilience, we've got power, looking at it from the marginalized. And Pride was really coalesced around sex workers, people of color, gender nonconforming people. Individuals, trans individuals, um, mm. homeless individuals. There's just a lot of uh, a lot of history that we need to really make sure we keep that tradition alive.
0: Certainly. Thank you for sharing that. So elsewhere in the news, we also had a couple of things happen. Is it a is this a good time to talk about President Nelson's statement, Derek?
1: Right. Yeah. Let's talk about that.
0: All right, I'm I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but just to like frame the context of what we're going to be talking about real quick. Obviously, with the events of this past week, a lot of people have been hurting. A lot of people have been, you know, experiencing pain, have been experiencing feelings of grief and mourning, and a lot, and consequently, a lot of uh, businesses, high-profile individuals, churches have made official statements about the events that are happening currently, what with the, uh, with the riots, with the protests and vigils happening to uh, express grief and mourning over the losses, like over the systemic police brutality and white supremacy that is present in our system, but also specifically in these last three weeks, the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and of course, uh, the most recent one, George Floyd. So all these people and companies and organizations have been making these statements, and um, most of these statements have been made last week. But the church, where I guess President Nelson, he made one on on Monday, finally, which felt a little late, but you know, better late than never. And um, first of all, it was hard to find this statement. Like this statement, I I kind of had to like go to the sub pages on the church news site to find it initially. It was Facebook was the only place I could find it when it finally did drop so uh, the visibility wasn't great but I would like to take a moment to lift up the positive things that are in this particular statement if you guys are interested in reading the statement in full you can go to President Nelson's Facebook page to see it in full it is the most recent post on uh, on his timeline so President Nelson actually says the word racism in this post, which I feel is, uh, you know, pretty praiseworthy. He says that racism is bad, and he acknowledged that racism has led to quote escalating violence and unrest. He also said that the racist need to repent. He cited the Savior's ministry among the margins and said that as disciples. We can't do anything less than what Jesus Christ did, implying that we need to be more mindful of our ministry among the marginalized. He also said that freedom and kindness and fairness belongs to all of God's children and that we are all God's children. These are important and necessary things, but myself and many other black saints were not wholly satisfied with the statement for A a variety of reasons but before I get there Derek was there anything else in this statement that you felt was appropriate to lift up
1: you know that statement about the marginalized in Jesus's ministry that really resonates almost could have been that one line could have been written by us I hate to say it that way but it said it in a very bold way that a lot of people wouldn't have connected that before and Mm -hmm. you know looking at that really counters the all lives near all lives matter narrative some of The rest of what President Nelson said gets a little all lives mattery, but that Uh one line that says we need to focus on those who are marginalized and excluded—that's really Black Lives Matter.
0: Absolutely, yes. Thank you for thank you for highlighting that. So, um, the biggest reason that seems to be that this seems to be a bit of a swing and a miss for a lot of Black folks or for a lot of people in general is that first of all, the statement, the whole statement seems to focus and center white comfort over black pain. Like the statement specifically names looting and the destruction of property, and even calls both of these things evil specifically, but it doesn't specifically name the more relevant, the more pervasive, and the more damaging evil of police brutality or white supremacy. There's there's no mention of the names of those killed. There's no mention of the systemic destruction of black life. There are no specific solutions posed to the moment that we're in right now. There is no specific instruction on how to identify racism in others or ourselves or on how to act in this present moment. One of the most dangerous things about racism, in my opinion, and I think I brought this up on last week's show, is how well it's programmed into our existence to the point where we have a lot of difficulty identifying it in ourselves or identifying it, period. We we talked last week about Amy Cooper, about how she was able to say that she wasn't a racist and didn't intend for Christian Cooper to come by any harm. And she said this after repeatedly and deliberately weaponizing her whiteness to control and potentially kill a black man. Like Amy Cooper, there are so many people in this church who will swear up and down, that they're not racist, but they're still prioritizing the destruction of property over the destruction of uh, black life when they post their outrage to social media. The prophet is telling us to abandon attitudes of prejudice, but he doesn't tell us how to identify this in ourselves. He tells us to foster respect of human dignity, but doesn't tell us how to do that or go into any kind of specifics. He tells us to build bridges of understanding rather than walls of segregation, but doesn't tell us what that looks like. It's like what in the what in the kumbaya all lives matter kind of mess is that? You know what I'm saying? Just there doesn't seem to be a lot of focus on what specifically we can do to really be a minister to our black brothers and sisters the statement it doesn't it doesn't specifically challenge th- the white supremacy that has brought this to this present moment like the thing i really appreciated about the other statements by other churches is that they specifically name either white supremacy or institutional racism or police brutality mm-hmm. in right. their statements and oh my gosh that ben and jerry statement was mm-hmm. incredible, if I wasn't lactose intolerant, I would have loaded my freezer up with Ben and Jerry's, but uh, we didn't get any of that here in uh, President Nelson's statement. Like I said, there, there's no specific challenge of the white supremacy that has brought us here. The only specific problem named, again, is the one that is a symptom of the greater and more pernicious evil, and unfortunately, that's what people have, are seem to be seizing on right now. People are already using the prophet's words, his specific condemnation of rioting and looting to, uh, to you know, silence people who are really trying to focus on the institutional oppression simply because President Nelson doesn't, say that specifically meanwhile black folks are over here trying to have some sort of specificity to point at but we don't have any in the prophet's own words people are getting the misguided understanding that this is the more important thing to worry about this is the more important thing to condemn because the prophet specifically names it and he doesn't specifically name or condemn any of the quote-unquote recent evidences of racism that he speaks of earlier in Mm -hmm. his statement the statement All in all, just didn't go far enough. You might even argue, and I do this carefully, you might even argue that there's some kind of hypocrisy in it. Like to cite Christ's ministry to the marginalized and then center the sensibilities of privileged white people just doesn't seem appropriate for a statement like this. It doesn't, it's not appropriate at all. Like it doesn't feel like President Nelson Was speaking to us. It felt like he was speaking past us. It felt like a performative dog and pony show to let Mormons feel like their church cares while not alienating its members who may not be ready to be told that their attitudes about black people need to change, meanwhile, leaving actual black people, people who are legitimately and directly affected by what's happening in the world right now, feeling like We have yet again been ignored we are yet again wanting and we yet again feel like we're not seen this was supposed to be a moment for us this was supposed to be about our grief and our pain and we are not feeling seen in this statement by the Lord's anointed that's all I want to say about that immediately Derek do you have any thoughts about this statement
1: yeah yeah so I have some thoughts And I agree, and obviously I I can't speak to or for the black experience, but I can speak from someone who is socialized to be white. And I can recognize in this statement something that is supposed to be soothing and appealing for whiteness. This statement is written by a white prophet. We should name that President Nelson is white, right? Like if we had a black prophet, we would name him as as black. But Mm -hmm. he's white, we should name him as white. And he's writing from that perspective and he's really writing in a way that reflects white modes of thinking, white modes of discourse, white modes of framing the world, things around respectability and politeness mm-hmm. in a certain way, right, and not taking risks and, and not saying anything too edgy or all of these white values um, right. are really reflected here. And that's really contrary to the values of the Hebrew prophets or Christ's apostles who actually took risks. You know, the polite people don't get themselves crucified. That's exactly mm-hmm. what Jesus did. Mm-hmm. He said the wrong thing at the wrong time too many times. And uh, that's that's why prophets get rejected is because they really challenge the status quo and they take risks. They don't play it safe. You know right. how... Um, I've never been an actor. I mean, the last acting I did was when I pretended to be sp- straight in preschool. But, <laughs> but I know people who have taken acting lessons, and a lot of it is about taking a risk, not risking the truth, but taking a social risk. And I think if he had said the words Black Lives Matter or if he had named polo- police brutality, he would be taking a risk because there's a lot mm-hmm. of people who would be alienated, a lot of people in the church, in his constituency that would be alienated by something like that, but that's exactly what they need to hear. Like you said, the whole point of calling for repentance, he called for repentance, but if the sinner does not recognize, I don't think this is written in any way that anyone who didn't already know they were racist would look at this statement and realize, oh no, President Nelson just made me realize I'm a racist and now Mm -hmm. I need to repent. Mm -hmm. That's the statement that we need. Yes, One that will hold people accountable, and take take those risks. Yes, sir. Um, a, a few other things that are missing in this statement is wrestling with our own into institutional history of racism in the church that needs to be named as mm-hmm. a model for repentance. Right. Some other things missing in this statement is solidarity with the um, the peaceful and nonviolent protests. Mm-hmm. Right. Because he focused, he made it look like all of the resistance is this looting and rioting. He didn't even name and and, and share empathy and solidarity with uh, with the vast majority of of black folks and accomplices who are saying things need to change. I mean that that's really important. Another thing that he didn't really name, and you you spoke to this earlier is the systemic nature of racism. Someone who's a racist could just look at this and say, oh, racism is just one individual uh, decision by someone in power who, for example, like if you're on a dating app and you swipe all the people of color and you reject them, that's what they think is racism, right? Just one individual making one little difference. There's nothing about why uh things like segregation and redlining and and the the keeping a certain population away from access to good jobs and good education and good even drinking water all these other things that lead to a differential impact I- on entire communities is not just individuals you know making a racist statement or a racist comment here it's it's something larger than that and president nelson doesn't speak to that Right, I I really think it's completely inappropriate To balance lynching And police brutality And the, the destruction of life With crimes against property Those should not even be in the same statement um, You know in the Torah Crimes against life are treated Way differently than crimes against property Right
0: not in the same uh, conversation at all
1: And uh, I just I don't want to take up too much time on this But just to uplift everything that you've said And there's some I hate to, uh, we ha- what's, what's bad is to, to say the word, at, the phrase at least. You know, an empathetic response never begins with the word at least. So we shouldn't really say, well, at least he said something or "Well, at least he did this because that, that doesn't get to the heart of the, the, the issue. It's settling for crumbs. I know. But there's uh, one thing to note is that I went on to some LDS conservative Facebook groups to see how they reacted and okay. most of these these right wing people were fine with the whole uh, fine with the whole thing except the first paragraph, and so that made me go back and read the first paragraph. What were their problem with the first their paragraph? Their problem with the first paragraph was that it called out racism as, <laughs> as what as, as a, a, and connected it with um, with George Floyd's death because because their position is oh that that wasn't racist that uh that the cop would have done the same thing to a white white person in the same situation that there's no larger issue of racism that it's just one cop that's a bad apple and there's no racism and
0: how sway sorry continue like i'm I'm perplexed right now
1: the first paragraph called out racism enough to make these um alt-right people mad and they could they could navigate the rest of the of the thing, but to connect the recent events with racism mm. is what was so problematic to them. And in that way, I maybe President Nelson mm-hmm. reached them in a little bit of a way. And uh, you know, because here's the other thing: it's not just liberals that are frustrated right. with the profit; it's conservatives too. Um, and. They're not the ones that are completely fully obedient and orthodox. They are uh, they they pick and choose. And they did not like this statement.
0: I think that we're really going to have to do this whole thing on our own. That That's where I am at this point. This should have been an easy thing to do, I feel. But it's weak responses to white supremacy like this that make people like you and I necessary. I'm not sure what it's going to take or how long it's going to be. But if the church ever gets to the point of more directly disavowing police brutality and white supremacy that inspiration is going to come from the bottom up
1: right you know and there's some good justification in President Nelson's statement for that that we can use strategically because the last four paragraphs have the word we or us in them yeah like we need to foster um, faith we need to foster respect we need to work tirelessly we need to work together for peace you know so there's room. He, President Nelson didn't say, like, oh, I'm going to do this. He said, all of us, we've got to work. And so we can actually claim uh-huh. that as a justification for doing what we're we're doing anyway. Right. Definitely. So that's all. didn't even think you know, about that. Um, I always try to th- look at uh, things from the bottom and seeing well, what here is useful? And what here can I work with? Um, mm-hmm. And I think there's while the statement isn't perfect there's things that, that good people will be able to work with
0: yeah I I do agree I do agree there's some things we can work with so uh, that is pretty much all I have to say about uh, the statement and you know in Joanna Brooks's book is there anything else we got to cover before we jump into the come follow me no I think that's it all right Then before we go into the come follow me, just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay, so we are in Alma 8 through 12. Now, what's going on in these particular chapters? We are seeing what seems to be the beginning of Alma's uh, missionary work. He is going to the city of Emanihah. We see him get rejected. We see him meet Amulek, which uh, which is definitely a good, good cause for a conversation. We see some of Amulek's preaching, the result of their meeting, and we also see uh, Alma confront Zezrum in uh, in chapter 12. So there are those are basically the highlights of these chapters and uh what we can what we can expect is there is there anything else we should preface this
1: analysis with before we jump into the content Derek? No, I think that's it. I'm just going to go ahead and jump right into some things in Alma 8. I'm going to do almost like a kaleidoscope of features from each of these chapters. Okay. So let's start here with Alma chapter 8 verses 10 and 13. So here we have Alma realizing the rejection in Ammonihah and Alma's laboring in the spirit, wrestling with God in mighty prayer that God would pour out his spirit upon the people who were in the city. And then it says in verse 13, um, they reviled him and spit upon him and caused that he should be cast out of their city. And I think it's really interesting that even after Alma wrestled with God, things still got worse. Mm. So I, my lesson here is that wrestling with God is valuable, and it builds our character even if we don't see change right away. And we know that we will be vindicated in the end. And I think that we'll, we'll talk about prosperity later, but here we see that. Oh, I love that, that, I, that phrase, here we see. And thus we see. Another thing we see is that maybe the answer to Alma's prayer wasn't uh, fixing the problem right away. It was sending Amulek because that's what we get next is Amulek. I think that's really the outcome of wrestling with God. And the other thing about wrestling with God is a lot of people in the church don't think that you can wrestle with God to name your complaints and to call out God and, and say, where are you and what's going on? And hold God accountable. I think wrestling with God really runs parallel to this cultural thing about obedience that a lot of Latter day mm-hmm. Saints have. Like, oh, we just have mm-hmm. to roll over and do whatever God says and without any type of feedback. And this mm-hmm. gives us a legitimacy to our wrestling with God. Right. And like I said, the answer to that prayer was Alm- uh, Alma getting Amulek. So let's look at verses 19 through 21. Here's what it says. And as he entered the city, he was an hungered, and he said to a man, Will ye give to an humble servant of God something to eat? And the man said unto him, I am a Nephite, I know you're a prophet, all these other things. I saw an angel. And it's not until the 21st verse that it says, And the man was called Amulek. I think it's so interesting that we we learn Amulek's character Before we learn his name. Mm. And I think that's so profound because that's what people are going to remember. And you really need to know who someone is in order to get to know them. You need to know their character. Right. And the other thing I like about this is that it sets up Alma and Amulek as great companions for each other and they support one another and they compliment one another and they bring out the best in one another. And that's why I'm so glad, James, that you and I are doing this podcast together that we bring out the best. Yeah, we bring out the best in each each other. (laughs) Precious. Yeah, man. So I'm going to move this on to Alma chapter 9, and here's verse 13. I want to talk a little bit about prosperity. Here's another cultural facet of our church that we need to to bring out. Okay. It says, Behold, do ye not remember the words which he spake unto Lehi, saying that, inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land? Hmm. And again, it is said that inasmuch as ye will not keep my commandments, ye shall be cut off from the presence of the Lord. Now notice here the structure of the Hebrew parallelism. It effectively equates prospering in the land as the opposite of being cut off from the presence of the Lord. Mm -hmm. You know, this is how Hebrew uh, Hebrew poetry works, is you say one thing, and then you like restate it in another way with a comparison or a contrast. And by doing that, we realize keeping the commandments leads to prospering in the land, not keeping in the commandments leads to being cut off from the presence of the Lord. So what I take from this is that um, prospering in the land isn't this economic thing where you have a spouse and kids and a, business and your own multi-level marketing thing <laughs> and <laughs> and you know political and worldly success that's not really what prospering is and mm. the best clue to the meaning of the word prosper is to look deeply at the life of Jesus right now he kept the commandments mm-hmm. right so he should be prospering mm-hmm. but he was in poverty no stable home as an adult, Mm -hmm. wandering. He died at a young age. We have no record in any of the scriptures of a spouse or children Mm -hmm. for Jesus. And this is the opposite of what most culturally uh, informed Latter-day Saints assume prosperity to be. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, it hits home for me, first off. like uh, So much of my life has been about tying my sense of self-worth to you know, the things I accomplished to prosperity, as it were. And I've read these verses many times, you know. I've One of the first notes I've taken as I've read through the Book of Mormon for myself, like, in fact, the first time I read through the Book of Mormon cover to cover, one of the first things that stood out to me, one of the most profound things that stood out to me was how in nearly every book in the Book of Mormon, some version of this promise was listed. And I really took it to heart, you know. And uh, I'll admit, I didn't always look at that In the most healthy way, you know, I understood prosperity to mean things like making money, having friends, having a wife and kids, having all the regular metrics or at least the worldly metrics of success. You know what I'm saying? Mm. And I know that I know that's not healthy. In fact, even though I know it's not healthy, I don't wholly believe it, even now and i probably should be getting some therapy or something about it but you know i just really appreciate how you were how you are able to reframe this promise in like by having us look at the promise of the lord that we shall prosper in the land to its inverse that is put in in that same verse that we reframe prosperity not as you know success or accomplishment in the worldly sense but as seems to be defined here which is being in the presence of the Lord, having a truly abundant life in the presence of the Lord, being able to feel of his spirit, being able to prosper in the way that Jesus was while he was on this earth. For even though he was, as you said, not wealthy as to the things of the world. In fact, you know, we say this all the time about how he was on the margins and how he pretty much embraced that life as, as someone on the margins. He was not, uh, he was not, he was not poor in miracles. He was not poor in spirit. He was not, uh, he didn't want for anything from his father. You know what I'm saying? Except in, you know, you could argue in his final moments, but, uh, Mm -hmm. Jesus had the things that mattered. He prospered in the things that mattered. And that's what I think we're supposed to gather from
1: this particular promise as, as you
0: framed it, Derek. So thank you for bringing that up.
1: Yeah, and so much of his prosperity is what he built, and what he built was a connection of relationships among people that really Mm. radically changed the whole world. We're talking about him 2,000 years later. That is success. Mm -hmm. It's not success the way Caesar... See, there's in the New Testament a contrast between what Caesar did, like military might and conquering, and Jesus is the inverse of all that. Right. So I want to talk a little bit about Jesus here in Alma 9, verse 26, here we get this beautiful prophecy and not many days hence the son of god shall come in his glory and his glory shall be the glory of the only begotten of the father full of grace equity and truth full of patience mercy and long suffering quick to hear the cries of his people and to answer their prayers and i want to connect this and jump ahead a little bit into what we've got later in alma 10 verse 21 where it says i will come down among my people with equity and justice in my hands right. and i want to note that this text here in in 9 is similar to the declaration we have in john 1 verse 14 and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth however Equity is added here in Alma to John's grace and truth, so that when I read it in Alma, it gives this appearance of an extra emphasis on the word equity, because that's the one that's new. Mm. And I really like that emphasizing that Jesus is uh, is about equity and coming with the part of the promises here that God will descend. And take his place among the marginalized, lower himself, and mm. come with equity and justice in his hands. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk a little bit about what that means in terms of urging the people of Ammonihah to repentance. Okay. Because the logic I, I'm having is well, why is he mentioning equity? in the context of urging the people to repent and i think it has to do with god's character and how god turns things upside down and just like in the magnificat where we have the lowly exalted and the and the rich cast down from their thrones i think that's a really interesting way of connecting this why would why would hearing about equity as as a value for god urge people to repent what do you think When you think about equity
0: that we need in our society, it requires those with wealth, privilege, and resources to either share or forfeit those things to lift others up. It requires us to be our brother's keepers in ways that demand that we change not only how we treat our siblings, but how we think about them and change is the definition of repentance. Judging by the interactions Alma has had with the people of Ammonihah before and during Amulek's eventual exchange with them there are likely issues of equity and to preach mm-hmm. equity to a people like that is to tell them that they have to change in a way that's going to make them better but will also make them uncomfortable
1: yeah i i love this idea of the lord as a great equalizer the first shall be last and the last shall be first which means if you're on top mm-hmm. you better be careful you know. And so this gives a warning to those who are dominant and it gives hope to those who are oppressed. And I think that's really probably why the people of Ammonihah got angry is because they had something invested in the injustice. Otherwise why would they yes. why yes. would they not repent unless they had something that they were gaining out of this. So speaking of that, let's talk about right. what you noticed in Alma 10 about Amulek and and those things.
0: Yeah. So um I got stuck in Alma 10 because there are there is an exchange at the beginning that teaches us how to leverage privilege and an exchange near the end that is an all-too-familiar kind of exchange, particularly for black people. At the beginning of the chapter where we'll start, Alma just finished speaking to the people of Ammonihah, and they're not happy with him. They actually try to lay hands on him to cast him into prison, but Amulek stands before them He places his body between Alma and them, and he begins to preach to them, but not without one heck of an introduction. He identifies himself as a citizen of Ammonihah. He identifies himself as a Nephite, and he identifies himself as a popular and rich man, a man of no small reputation, I believe is what he says. Then he bears witness of his conversion and of the truthfulness of Alma's words. Amulek, in doing this much, disrupted the solidarity of his people and created space for Alma as an outsider to have his message heard. That's how you leverage privilege. Now, the second thing we see later in this chapter is something all too familiar to black folks, which is a shifting of the goalposts, if you will. This is something that was most obvious to me when Barack Obama became president. He was the literal perfect picture of respectability. Everything that my own mother wanted me to be. He was uh, well-spoken, intelligent, educated, charming, not to mention good-looking and all that other nonsense. But as soon as he, a man who literally did everything that white people said that we gotta do it right, in order to get yes. their respect, as soon as he got into office, the disrespect persisted. In fact, you might even argue that it increased. Now, this is something that we see here in this uh in these verses in about 24 through 26 racist whites will often set standards that are difficult to meet or they'll ask a question in bad faith and what's such a standard when such a standard is met or when such a question is answered they'll shift the goalposts so they can keep being their racist selves like they did with barack obama when he won the standard is set for alma in this in his case uh which was having a witness beside himself that we can see in alma chapter 9 verse 2 Amulek provided that witness, and then the goalposts get shifted, and the people make up something else to be mad about. We see in verse 24, The people were more angry with Amulek, and they cried out, saying, This man doth revile against our laws, which are just, and our wise lawyers whom we have selected. So, there they go. They're making up new things to be mad about and uh, to take issue with. Now having read the preceding verses, we know that that's not true. Amulek actually says as much in verse 26. Have I testified against your law? Ye do not understand. Ye say that I have spoken against your law, but I have not. But I have spoken in favor of your law to your condemnation. Yo. This is almost like that hashtag All Lives Matter crowd taking issue with Black Lives Matter. They are deliberately mishearing the hashtag to remain in their own sin and ignorance. Even more analogous was Kaepernick's protests. Many times he as well as others, have clarified why he peacefully knelt during the national anthem. But racist folks concocted their own ideas of what Kaepernick was doing so they could sit comfortably in their racism and ignorance. Kaepernick wasn't disrespecting our troops, our flag, or our laws, but he was actually invoking all three of those things to condemn a racist system, much like Amulek used the law of the people of Ammonihah to condemn them.
1: Right, and I think part of the hypocrisy behind this idea of, of oh, you're disrespecting our... Situation you know That gets revealed when you realize They never say that police Brutality disrespects our flag It should right? Like that flag right. stands literally For liberty and justice For all and that's Not what we have mm-hmm. every time Police use the Authority of this country They have a legal monopoly On violence in this country every Time they use that That's disrespecting the flag, especially when they do it in such an unjust manner. And that goes back to what what we're saying earlier. Uh, You said it so beautifully how there's a couple of ways that they said, oh, you're not – that the people of Ammonihah said to Alma and Amulek, oh, you're not protesting right. Like the first one was that there was only one person, and the second excuse was, oh, you're reviling against our laws. And they're deflecting – they didn't even – they didn't even try to defend against their injustice. They just said, oh, you aren't mm-hmm. protesting right. You're disrespectful. You're not saying it the right way. And part of right. the reason they did that is they didn't see the flaws as structural and systemic throughout Ammonihah. Because if they did, they would understand what was going on. And that's why right. um, they misconstrued everything as an attack on their civilization rather than... than a defense of what's at the heart of justice in that civilization and you know I think it's unfortunate for the people of Ammonihah because under Amulek understands their laws better than they do and recognizes the mm-hmm. hypocrisy and the injustice there and um, they will be destroyed for their gross structural injustice. And how do we know that it's structural? Because it's Amulek specifically calls out the selection of wicked lawyers and judges in verse 24 and in, and in verse 27. And then also in verse 32, Alma clearly notes the economic injustice among these leaders, that they had a vested interest in maintaining this injustice. And that's the reason yep. why they refused to listen. And that's why... Throughout Mm -hmm. these chapters, many places it calls them stiff-necked and hard-hearted and stubborn and all these other things.
0: Right, right.
1: And I want to connect this a little bit then into moving into this uh, section in Alma chapter 11 about the weights and measures here. And what people like, what what interesting lesson can you get out of this? But here's what I have. Notice that in verse 4 it says, Neither did they measure after the manner of the Jews, but they altered their reckoning and their measure according to the minds and the circumstances of the people in every generation until the reign of the judges, they having been established by King Mosiah. So one of the great principles here is that we can alter the pattern of things to accommodate the circumstances of the people. And what's interesting about the narrative flow here is that the narrator is very self-conscious, taking pains to explain things. Like the the narrator is aware that the reader might have an objection or a curiosity. And the implied reader might think, oh, this is something that couldn't be changed or would be surprised by a change. And that gets to the heart of my point, is that yes, sometimes things that we don't think can change can actually change. Now, I'm... Uh, Police abolitionist I really think that there's going to be a better way of doing this and that uh, there's somehow we can uphold community care find other ways of of addressing these problems rather than using violence to solve Oh yeah that is the most hypocritical thing about all this is people talk of to the protesters and say well violence is never the solution well if violence isn't the solution uh, <laughs> why do you give all these cops guns that literally is violence and that mm-hmm. is literally your solution is to put guns out that is not, if like I'm totally on board with nonviolence but I'm pointing out the hypocrisy of these people who they're not Supporting nonviolence. What they are is supporting this single legitimate monopoly on violence that law enforcement have in our society, mm-hmm. which I think is completely contrary to everything decent about humanity. But anyway, let's get back mm-hmm. to what I was saying. Yeah. It may be hard to imagine a world without police, or at least in the form that we have them now. And, but we can right. do that. And things can change according to the minds and circumstances of the people.
0: You know. I'll just add a witness to that, man.
1: Well, then I'll, I'll move on to what I noticed in Alma chapter 12. There's just two things here. The first one is in verses 4 and 5. And so here we have Amulek speaking to Zeezrom, saying, And thou seest that we know that thy plan was a very subtle plan as to the subtlety of the devil, for to lie and to deceive this people that thou mightest set them against us to revile us and to cast us out. Now this was a plan of thine adversary, and he hath exercised his power in thee I just want to focus on this. Mm. This was a plan of thine adversary speaking to Zeezrom I find it so striking that Amulek Names the devil as thine adversary There is a profound lesson here. Mm. We speak of the devil as our adversary the adversary of good people and we typically think of the devil and bad people as being on the same team, but as it turns out, Amulek implies here, it turns out that the devil is not just the adversary of good people, but also the adversary of bad people. Now, it seems counterintuitive, yeah. but it makes sense when we remember that Satan wants to ruin everyone, even his own followers. Right. For he seeketh that right. all men might be miserable like unto himself, it says in Second Nephi 2 mm-hmm. Nephi 2:27. And the lesson here is that the devil's white supremacy is bad for everyone, including Mm -hmm. the people that engage Mm -hmm. in it and perceive themselves as benefiting from it or who are complicit in it. It actually means that no one can be fully themselves. Not even white people can be fully ourselves in the face of white domination over people of color. And Satan is the adversary of all of us. And Satan's injustice and inequity as manifested in white supremacy is the opposite of justice of Jesus's justice and equity. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing I have in Alma 12 is is this. It says uh, in verse 10, and therefore he that will harden his heart, the same receiveth the lesser portion of the word. And he that will not harden his heart to him is given the greater portion of the word until it is given unto him to know the mysteries of god until he know them in full now one of the lessons now we have to think always put this in context why in this situation uh, is this prophet saying this to these people there's always going to be a, a practical reason it's not just theoretical i think here we have an urging to repent and what does is open-mindedness have to do with repenting? And here's what I'm saying is that one of the lessons is that open-mindedness and curiosity are absolute prerequisites for revelation and revelation is a prerequisite for full repentance and In this mm. case there was an urgency okay. because the people of Ammonihah would be destroyed if they did not repent of the systemic and economic injustice that was poisoning their land. And so the more they engaged mm-hmm. in this all-lives matter thinking, the more they refused to admit the problem, the more that they tried to falsely accuse those of who are protesting it as being disrespectful, the more they did all this, the more it would culminate in the destruction of their civilization. And so that's mm-hmm. that's really my point is connecting the fact that they needed to be open-minded to get more of God's word. Notice that it doesn't say, he that will harden his heart, the same receiveth none of God's word. It just says they receive a lesser proportion of the word. And I think that really happens so often in the church. We're content with the knowledge that we currently have. And we just say, well, we know everything about the plan of salvation. We know, and we don't. We don't know about everything about the plan of salvation for women because we have very little. We basically have nothing about what the life a, of an exalted woman w- looks like. We don't know anything about Heavenly Mother, mm. for sure. We don't even mm. know her name. How can we claim that we know everything about the plan of salvation? And the same thing for LGBTQ individuals. There's a lot we don't know. And having this humility and open-mindedness and curiosity is an absolute prerequisite for receiving a greater purport, a greater portion of the word.
0: To speak. Immediately to what you just said about being open-minded. I definitely know this to be true for, I think I've told you this story before, but a long time ago, one time I had real difficulty paying tithing after the exclusion policy was announced. In fact, I didn't pay for about two years. However, when I was seeking greater spiritual strength, I remember praying and asking what it was that I could do in order to increase in spiritual strength. And as I, played through all the things in my mind or ran through all the things in my mind that I could do, um, nothing was quite hitting and I was kind of avo- avo- avoiding the topic of tithing. But when I finally asked about tithing, I felt that that was something for me to do. I felt like that was something for me to focus on and reluctantly, I started paying tithing again and I started to experience the blessings, even though I didn't really want to do it, even though i had trouble with it but i did want to do it because i felt like the lord was actually commanding me to do it and to speak to that part you said about uh a white supremacy i'll add a witness to that being the being of the adversary and being the adversary of especially those who wield it i I once called white supremacy a parasite that ironically requires the people who it seeks to destroy in order for it to thrive it's the source of strength, identity, and life for racist people. Yet, if we ever left racist whites to their own devices, their way of life could no longer be sustained. They would perish so long as they held on to white supremacy because the fuel is simply no longer there. So as one of Satan's tools, it's totally appropriate that white supremacy will ultimately lead to everyone's destruction and misery. That's, that's Satan's design. That's his goal.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad we're doing this podcast because most people in the church have not explored the Book of Mormon as a social justice text. But I think when you think about its appearance in 1830 in America, all the things that it talks about, it really is uh, a social justice text. And it has a lot of potential to speak to the things of today. And right. I think that's all I had to say about the uh, Come Follow Me portion. Excellent. Excellent.
0: Then with that, we'll go ahead and move on to a couple of housekeeping items before we do that. Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, interviews about current LDS fiction, -fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date. On the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the dialogue lecture series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That is dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Derek, where can people find us?
1: People can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also find us at beyond the blockpodcast.com. That is right.
0: We also have recently started a, we actually did this last week, we started a glow page in an effort to sustain the work of the show and also improve it in various ways to further the mission of Beyond the Block to make Mormonism accessible to everyone. We launched this page where if you are willing and able, you can throw some coins our way in the form of a monthly contribution or a one-time contribution. Those who contribute anything get access to all the benefits of being in collaboration with us, including access to our collaborator Facebook group, where you can interact with us more directly, provide feedback and ideas for the show, access our notes, and uh, you know a lot, a lot more. If you don't have coins to throw at us, though, you can just share our glow page on your socials, and you can still join our collaborator community. We just need your email address so we can add you. Um, you can find this glow page at glow.fm slash beyond the block that's glow g-l-o-w dot f-m slash beyond the block and uh, we did have some new collaborators this week that we want to welcome into our fold janet klein cook sonrisa hansen parker uh, marisa pressa i hope i'm saying that right i see a latin first name and a german last name and i'm at a loss for how to anglicize that pronunciation so apologies for butchering your name feel more than free to get at me with the proper pronunciation Thank you also, Nick Andre, Sterling Crockett, Colby Kelly, I know we mentioned you last week, but you know you did up your contribution and that merits another shout out. Liz Red, Brittany Collado, our latest donor, uh, Dr. LaShawn Williams, thank you very much, as well as uh, Libby Simister and Jasenia Contreras. Thank you all of our new collaborators for joining us. Is there any other business
1: we gotta handle, Derek? No, other than I think one of the lessons we learned this week both in the news and in the Book of Mormon is the importance of not playing it safe but actually taking a risk. Not risking the truth, obviously we, we know the truth, but risking having a social risk and taking something that, that may cost you something. Make mm-hmm. sacrifices and do something this week as an ally. Just sit with that and, and, and we can change the world bit by bit if we all do it together. Thank you, Derek. With that, thank you guys for
0: joining us. Till we meet again next week.
1: Yeah, thank you.